Hello, friends and listeners of the LeaderCast podcast. This is Mo, the producer, jumping on really quick before this episode starts to let you know that we are going to be wrapping up season one of the podcast. The final episode in season one will be coming out on April 23rd. We are going to be coming back with an even better season two later this year. Stay tuned on our socials for updates as we know more, and thank you for being an avid listener. This is the LeaderCast Podcast, helping you be a leader worth following. LeaderCast Now is an online resource for your leadership development. Get the solutions to your leadership challenges on any device at the moment you need it. To learn more, go to now.leadercast.com. Hello, LeaderCast community, and welcome to the 52nd episode of the LeaderCast Podcast. I'm Angie Ahrens, and I'm excited to join you today for our conversation as we speak with Mark Randolph, a veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur, recent author, advisor, and investor. Have you ever had an idea and shared that excitement with another person, only to have them tell you that will never work? Or maybe you have a team who you can't convince that this idea that you have will change the company. How do you nurture that creativity, drive the team forward, and keep them accountable all at the same time? Our guest today will help share some insight on his journey, what has worked, what lessons he's learned along the way, and how you as a leader can drive forward. Mark was the co-founder of Netflix, serving as their founding CEO, as the executive producer of their website, and as a member of their board of directors. Although best known for starting Netflix, Mark's career as an entrepreneur spans more than four decades. He's founded or co-founded more than half a dozen other successful startups, mentored rising entrepreneurs, and invested in numerous successful tech ventures. He works extensively with young entrepreneur programs, sits on the board of the environmental advocacy group 1% for the Planet, and chairs the National Outdoor Leadership School's Board of Trustees. If you are an entrepreneur and want insight on this journey, be sure to check out his book, That Will Never Work. It is a great read for anyone who's looking to start their own adventure. With that, let's get started. Hi, Mark. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? I'm quite well, thanks. Thanks for uh, having me. No, we're really excited to have you. You've been an entrepreneur your whole career, best known for co-starting Netflix. I remember Netflix when you were mailing DVDs to me every every day in my 20s, just shipping them back and doing all of that in those little red envelopes. But for some people who don't realize that it was not was easy to stream it from their television, Why don't you back up a little bit? Tell us about the creation story of Netflix. How did you brainstorm this great idea? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the fact that it originally was on uh, DVD only, because even though we did that for 10 years, people still seem to think we sprang fully formed in some moment of inspiration into a streaming company. But like most companies, they start out in ways completely different than the way they end up. And Netflix is no different. You know, when we, when Reed Hastings and I were casting about for what business we were going to start, we had pretty narrow range of things we were considering. We just wanted to sell something on the internet and that was it. So video was certainly not one of the criteria. One of the ideas was, you know, personalized shampoo. Another was, um, custom dog food, uh, custom baseball bats. I mean, crazy things. And then one of the equally crazy ideas we were brainstorming back and forth was doing video rental by mail, which was in and of itself a ridiculous idea because this is back in 1997. 
So there's a blockbuster pretty much on every corner. But nevertheless, we thought this might be an interesting idea because we could offer every single DVD available because back then it was a brand new medium. There weren't any. And so we said, let's just give it a shot. And Reed was willing to write a big check as my first angel investor. And I hired a dozen people or so. And we spent about six months building this simple e-commerce website to try and figure out whether, in fact, renting DVDs by mail was a good idea or not. You said you just went out and hired 12 people to talk or to work with you. How do you convince those people to buy into this idea, like to be like, I want to be innovative? How do you convince them to come over to your team and start that process? (laughs) Well, it's funny because I called the book That Will Never Work because that's pretty much what every single person I went to said. And not just the people I was trying to convince to work for me, you know, but investors, friends, you know, even my wife said that'll never work. And it really speaks, though, to what it takes to have that entrepreneurial mindset, because for people like myself, saying that will never work is equivalent to raving the red flag in front of the bull. It's just a challenge to figure out how to make it work. And, you know, I was I was 38 when I started Netflix and it wasn't my first company. It was the sixth company. So I'd had a chance not only to you know have some experience in business, but more importantly, to collect people, to find people that I'd worked with before, worked for me before, that I knew shared this sense that this was a challenge. You loved the fact that we were going to do something that everyone else said was impossible, that had never been done before. And so part of it was almost like one of those scenes from the Blues Brothers movie or, you know, where they're let's get the band back together. And you're going around trying to convince people to quit their current jobs and come off on this wild, crazy, irrational journey with you. But, you know, fundamentally, that was how to convince people who would already work with me. When you're going in cold, I think the most powerful tool you have is optimism or confidence. This is believing that this will work because people can see that in your face and they can hear that in your voice. And people want to sign on to something which they think is taking a long shot, but we can actually pull this off. I love that collecting people. And I think many leaders in all industries, you know, you have that point person you kind of look to. So that that collection of people and leading them through that is a really great point because that's something you have to remember is if you like something in someone, but they're diverse in that area and something that you might not be strong in, that's a way to look at it. So I love that. Thank you for that. In fact, it, that's that's a critical piece of it. It's not just getting this random collection of people. I mean, a lot of the people that I collected are people who not only shared that entrepreneurial mindset and shared that sense that startups from an adventure, but they're also people that I knew filled in holes in my expertise. You know, I'm I'm a pretty I'm a really good idea person, but I'm a terrible follow through person. And so I knew that I needed to have at least one or two people who would be there to really help dot the I's, cross the T's, and make sure a lot of this crazy stuff actually happened. But the whole thing is even even the partnership with Reed, you know, he had a totally different professional background than mine. Um, and that's what makes these things work. And it sounds like you didn't have any fear. It was the curiosity. It was the drive, as you said, optimism in that when you started. So what advice do you have for leaders who should be more curious as they try to reimagine their careers and businesses, but are afraid to? 
Well, I'm glad you bring that up. It is, and I say this with complete confidence, the single biggest problem that uh, aspiring entrepreneurs have is that they're scared to start. And, And it's not that it's an unreasonable fear. I mean, you have this idea and you're scared of failure or you're scared of being laughed at or you're scared of people saying that will never work. And so you do the natural thing, which is leave that idea inside your head where it's safe and warm and everything goes well. And you can build your business nice and safely in your imagination. And there it can be a big, huge multinational company with millions of users. But until you take that ridiculous idea and collide it with a real customer, you're not learning anything. And what I've learned is you have to do that. You've got to take the idea, no matter how ridiculous it is, and recognize that really no one knows anything that the only way to figure out whether your idea is a good one is to figure out a way to try it. And in fact, that's become the skill set these days. It's not how good your ideas are. Those count for nothing. It's how clever you can be in figuring out quick or cheap or easy ways to test your ideas. That's what separates successful entrepreneurs from the aspiring wannabes. And testing leads into learning. So let's dive a little deeper into that too. I know you you are a mentor and a coach in your career. So for people who are seeking out a mentor, what advice do you have for them? <laughs> well, step one, you got to ask. A lot of people are hoping they're just going right. to collide randomly with somebody. And yeah, that might happen. But, you know, don't ask, don't get is uh, rule number one. Um, but here's truly the the big advice is that you have to be humble. And recognize that you're going to learn mostly by watching. You're going to learn mostly by doing. You know, I don't know whether of your age you've seen Karate Kid, you know, the movie. I mean, it's like wax on, wax off. A lot of the times you're doing things that seem completely ridiculous. And only later do you realize that you were actually learning something. So, in fact, the advice that I give to people who are looking for mentors, the advice I gave to my own children was to find the smartest person you know who will take you seriously, but then do anything they want. Sweep the floor, file things, do anything to be in the room because you're going to see how someone's doing it. You're going to see the way they make decisions. And then eventually, once they begin to know you, like you, that's when you realize you can, you'll be able to call that person up for a lifetime for advice. So let's kind of flip the switch. Like you look for a mentor, but when is the right time to become a mentee? Like what, what do you do in the other way around? Like what's your best advice for the person who is trying to mentor someone? Well, uh, I'm not sure how to say it in Latin, but basically it's, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, <laughs> which is number, number one, do no harm. And I think I mean, I'm going to take a wild tangent here for a moment. So, you know, the book, I wrote the book 16 years after I left Netflix. And one of the reasons was because it took long enough to gain some perspective on what actually happened. What did I do? What was this coincidence? What was luck? And I think there's this problem with survivor bias in the world where people look at someone successful and think, and and, and even worse, they think that their success came because of the things they did. And it takes a tremendous amount of honesty to really understand what do I know? 
to understand that these truths I might think I'm dispensing are, are they really truths or not? So I recommend someone being a mentor is with great humility and great caution. You know, and I do dispense from the warning to anyone I talk to, which is be careful because I have the ability to say things with great authority and great confidence that I know almost nothing about. And you have to recognize that. And I have to recognize that. It's really dangerous to be a mentor to somebody. And it sounds like, you know, coming along with that accountability of making sure you don't screw up, essentially, we're bound to make mistakes. And some people may ask you, what is your greatest mistake? But I know that you like to look at them as lessons as part of that experience. Not really mistakes, but what are your greatest lessons? So with that being said, what is the greatest lesson you learned while leading others? You know, What's interesting is that learning, at least for me, does not come in the single moment of inspiration. It's accumulation of lots of little things. And I would say that right now I'm really good and comfortable with trying stuff that I have no idea if it's going to work or not and not being scared of the outcome. And that was not always the case. I was exactly like everybody else, which is I was this perfectionist and I'd want all my tests to be perfect and all these experiments to be perfectly implemented because I had this false belief that unless the test was perfectly constructed, you wouldn't really understand the results. And worse, that unless I was had some high confidence it would work, it would be a waste of effort. And now I've realized there is no bottom. You can make it as crappy as you want. You never get to the point you go, ooh, that was, I rushed that out there too soon. And that is by far the biggest learning because the more comfortable I got with throwing things out half-assed, the more comfortable I got with trying things I only barely understood to see what happened, the faster I learned. And it made me fearless. And it made me believe that there's no such thing anymore as a good idea. They're all bad ideas, but that you have to start with the bad idea in order to begin the learning process that eventually leads you to something that works. And you talk about radical honesty too. So I want to talk a little bit about that and the accountability factor of that. So can you tell us about a radical honesty in general and how can it help or hurt teams to be accountable in their work? Developing world-class leaders in your community is now easier than ever with LeaderCast. In addition to our flagship May event, becoming a presenting partner allows you to stream multiple events per year, each with an opportunity to earn money. The new LeaderCast lets you invite 1 to 1,000 people with unlimited streaming opportunities. Check out more at LeaderCast.com or the link in our bio. You know, people talk a lot about culture and they have all these aspirational ideas of what they want their culture to be. And I don't know, it's personal, but I've always believed you can't make a culture because cultures spring from how you are and they spring from how you act. They spring from how you treat people, how you treat your co-founder. And I've just naturally always been someone who does not believe that believes that life's too short to hedge the truth. And and I'm not saying, you you know, I'm not polite or sensitive, but I, you know, I'm not going to try and not tell someone what's really going on to spare their feelings or, Try and be manipulative. Just to, I, I don't understand it, but it's just not my nature. 
And so I've always kind of been that way. And, you know, some people don't like it. Some people really like it. And I think one of the things that made Netflix work so well was the fact that just by coincidence, Reed Hastings was the same way. And we immediately bonded over that, that we could have these egoless arguments, fighting like cats and dogs, but it was never personal. There was never ulterior motives. It was always about what is the right answer? What's the truth? And that, that came into effect, you know, whether we were trying to work out a business problem, but also being able to tell our, each other the truths about things. There's a really actually very intense moment I talk about in the book where, you know, one night, maybe early in the company's history, you know, a year or so in when Reed, he wasn't even working full time at the company then, came in after work and interrupted me in my office and, you know, said, we've got to talk and sat down and actually began laying out for me concerns he had about my judgment and my leadership. And purely because of the fact that we had this relationship founded on radical honesty, and because I respected Reed's judgment and intelligence, I knew I couldn't dismiss this. Oh, this is just jealousy, or this is an ax to grind, or this is an ulterior motive. I knew he was saying this because he believed it to be true, and that I had to think it through. And at first, I was a little freaked out, you know, because Reed had more uh, equity than I did because he was the angel investor. And I thought he was going to fire me or something. But it turns out what he was really saying was that because of this, he had realized that the company would be much stronger if the two of us ran it together. And he was proposing that he come and join the company full time. And that was a really powerful thing to hear. I'm sure it was a really hard thing for Reed to say, but it was the truth. And, you know, it's not the kind of thing you just blink your eyes and go, you're right. And then off you go, because my dream had been to be the CEO of this company, the sole CEO of this company. And now Reed was proposing something different. But I got to say, it was hard to argue with the fact that this would be a more powerful company and more likely to be successful if we ran it together. And I owed it to him. I owed it to myself. I owed it to our investors, to our employees, to our customers, to do everything I could to make it successful. And Reed was right. because. In many ways, what happened over those next few years was the renaissance at Netflix. And certainly, if you look at how Reed's run the company since, since I left, my God, you certainly can't argue that that was an incredibly good decision to have Reed join. I love that kind of camaraderie that you had and keeping each other accountable because, you know, sometimes egos do get in the way. And so it's awesome that you were able to push those aside and move forward and do what you needed to do. And you just brought up, you know, when you left the company, Reed took it to a different place. Let's talk a little bit about your departure. Like, how did you know it was time to end that chapter and move on? Like, what advice do you have for people who are wondering, is it my time to take the next step and do something different? You know, there's, there's two totally different uh, forces that play on that decision. The more important for, one for me was that I was really lucky that I learned something really, really important about myself when I was still reasonably young, you know, when I was in my early 30s. And I learned, one, what I enjoyed doing. I learned what really makes me whole and what fascinates me, intrigues me, and makes me chew at a problem forever. And it's early stage companies. And then I learned a second thing, which is I learned what I'm good at. And it's the same thing. I mean, I'll modestly say I am really good at early stage companies. and. As Netflix entered its seventh year, you know, 
we had seen some remarkable success. We had had our IPO. We had solved the business model problem. We had been able to hire some amazing people. We had a, we had a big company and I still loved Netflix just the way you would love a child. And you wanted to fight the battles and right the wrongs. But what I began to realize slowly was that I no longer necessarily loved what I was doing every day. And more importantly, that I wasn't very good at it. And you kind of come to this moment, you go, what's life about except for doing the things you love doing and that you're good at? And that said to me, it was time to go and get back to early stage stuff. And then part of it is recognizing that you have to do what's right for a company too. Um, and so I gradually, over a period of a year, year and a half, began slowly handing off responsibility to other people until I was able to have my very last job at Netflix being doing some of the initial research, how we were going to enter the streaming business. But I don't regret for a moment having left. I now do get to spend my time doing the things I'm good at and that I enjoy, which is working with other early stage entrepreneurs, helping them solve really interesting problems. You know, I get to uh, sit around with them, and, but then I get to go home at night. It's a win-win. And um, I, have, I have no regrets. And you talk about like finding the value in your life and remembering what that is and going home at night. So what is that piece of balance that you found between your home life and work life? Because starting businesses is a lot of work. So how do you find that balance? It, it is a lot of work. And, and I resolved really early on in my business career that I was not going to be one of those entrepreneurs who's on their seventh company, but also on their seventh wife or something. And I also wanted to the best of my ability to have a whole life, a balanced life where I didn't need to submerge the things that I enjoyed doing. You know, I'm a, I'm a mountaineer. I, I love climbing. I love backcountry skiing. I love mountain biking. I love kayaking, surfing, all those things. And that isn't the kind of stuff that you can say, I'll do that when I retire at age 72. You've got to make sure, but it's also not the kind of thing you can look at your calendar and go, oh, I've got 20 minutes between calls. I'm going to go run out and do a four-day mountaineering expedition. You've got to make space in your life for that. And I resolved I would try and do that. And I'll give you an example. And I talk about this in the book in more detail. But you know, early on, I said, I want to make sure I preserve this relationship with my wife. And not just for her sake, for my sake and for our sake. And so we had this policy where every Tuesday, no excuses at 5 p.m., I would leave and we'd have a date night. And at first, this was not easy because there is a startup is 24-7. But it, I was resolute. And if there was a crisis, well, damn it, we were going to solve it by five. And if you, okay, you've got to speak to me, fine. We're going to talk on the way to the car. But a really interesting thing happened, which is after a few months of me defending this space, all of a sudden everyone realized that I was serious about it and they stopped asking. Miraculously, there weren't these crises coming up at six o'clock on Tuesdays. And then this incredible secondary benefit, which is that everyone else began saying, I guess I should do this. That it was not just lip service when Mark was saying, we really need to have balance in our lives because I was modeling what that behavior looked like. So it was good for me. It was good for my marriage. It was good for my employees. And, you know, maybe there was some little piece of nuance of some deal that didn't get optimized, but 
that didn't end up being make it or break it. Is that something that you still apply to your work balance today? Are you still practicing that? Absolutely. In fact, you know, you and I spoke before we started uh, recording that I was I was explaining that I only do my calls and things on Tuesdays and Thursdays because I try and preserve one of those Wednesday for my deep work, but I also try and preserve Monday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday for the time to be a whole person. And which means getting out and going running or mountain biking or going off and going backpacking. Cause I realized how important that stuff is for me. I mean, I'm in a different position. Listen, I'm 62 years old and I've had some success and I can afford to have the flexibility, but it doesn't mean you can't do it now. You just have to be more creative. You've got to work harder. And it's the, it's that old ridiculous old story about the big rocks. If you wait until the jar is full of sand before you try and squeeze the big rocks in, they'll never fit. You got to start by making space for the big important things and let everything else fill in around that. You talked about like you like kayaking, you like being outdoors. And I know you're on the National Outdoor Leadership School's Board of Trustees. So what is one thing that you've taken as a lesson from the outdoors that could translate to the boardroom? <laughs> I on this this is no exaggeration. I think almost everything that I've learned about business, I learned outside. Certainly the most important lessons I've learned outside, which is lessons of leadership. Because you know, if you think about what it's like when you're out, you just take backpacking trip or a climbing trip. You know, you see the summit, but you don't know what your route's going to look like. You don't know what the obstacles uh, you're going to bump into along the way. You're not sure of the strength of your team. You're not sure who might be injured or who might get hurt. You're not sure what the weather's going to be like. And you have to be simultaneously keeping an eye on the distant goal, but you're also constantly reevaluating where you're going. And by doing that over and over and over in the outdoors, leading groups, you're learning these skills of how to communicate to a group with clarity and confidence decisions about which you may not be entirely clear or confident. That you recognize that you have to adjust your route finding to the strength of your team, to the obstacles you encounter, to what you need to do. And that's exactly the same stuff that you do in a business scenario. It's never the same. You're constantly having to adjust. You constantly have to evaluate the skill of your team. You constantly have to be able to communicate with clarity and confidence where you're going and why, even if you're not entirely clear and confident about it yourself. You've got to make decisions upon which there's contradictory or inconclusive or, you know, information. It's all the same. And getting the experience for it outdoors is an amazing teacher for doing it indoors. And being outdoors, I'm sure you've been guided through a path at some point, whether it's on a backpack trip or something like that. When you look back at all the leaders that you followed, the people who have inspired you, is there a lesson that just sticks out that you still practice and preach every single day? So the one that I really try and model is selflessness, which is recognize that as a leader, it is not about me that I need to use situational awareness about what my role really needs to be here. But ultimately, this is not me accomplishing something with the support of other people. It's coordinating a group of us to accomplish something that none of us could do on our own. Um, and it means recognizing that you're not this indispensable God. And sometimes, you know, in a crisis, you know, in a medical emergency, yes, you have to give orders. 
you have to say, here's what we're doing and do it. But that's extremely rare. Most of the time, that's not what leadership um, requires. And that's what I look for in other people. That's what I try and do myself. The other one, and this kind of goes back a little bit to our discussion about being a mentor, is I look for competence. And so the most powerful words that a leader can say is, I don't know. And you have to recognize in your own mind what you know and what you don't know. And you have to be clear. And I'm looking for the people who are know their stuff and don't necessarily need to rub it in people's faces. And it's okay to say that you don't know in leadership, right? So like, if you are looking in the face of doubt and being told something that you're just not aware of, how do you communicate that out when you're like, I don't know, and still keep the respect of the team around you? Is it just that authentic knowledge? There's, there's a role. It, again, it's, it, leadership is situational, but there's certainly a role where you are the decider, but you're deciding based on the input from other people. And it's entirely appropriate to surround yourself with people who are much more experienced, much more knowledgeable about a situation, and to be able to capture people's views, be able to capture dissenting views, to ensure that you have diversity of opinion and background in that group, and then make a very, very good decision based on something that you are not a domain expert upon. So it, it, and it's, a, it's a remarkably powerful way to make a decision because it becomes clear to everyone that you've factored in all the possible pieces of information you could gather up, even if you are not the one to contribute each of those pieces of information. I'm a huge believer that, you know, leadership is not something that you read in a book. It's not something you learn the, the words. Leadership is something you have to practice. And so the real trick, in my opinion, is figuring out opportunities to lead. And that the tragic thing is a lot of people think that the only forms of leadership are in business. And then the tra ultimately tragic part is that, especially if you're um, of a certain age, you don't get the opportunity to lead. You know, you end up being in your mid thirties or something before you're in a company where you actually get to make a real decision with real consequences. So if people really want to learn leadership, you got to put yourself in a position where you get that opportunity, which means usually means starting your own little thing. I don't mean a company, you know, do a, do your own, do a side business, to sell something on the street, start a club, do a magazine, anything just to get yourself this practice with convincing people to help you and assigning responsibility and making decisions. Sorry for that tangent. It's just a hot button. For no, me. I, I do your tangents are great. I, love <laughs> I will leave us with one final question because I know we're wrapping up our time here because this is a LeaderCast podcast and our mission is to fill the world with leaders worth following. I have to ask you, in your opinion, what makes a leader worth following? I'm being honest here. I don't know how to boil that down to a single, a single expression. I, it's a little bit like obscenity, which is that it's pornography even. It's really hard to define, but you kind of know it when you see it. You know when I'll you see it. That. See, deep thoughts by Mark. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect way to wrap this up. I mean, you've given us so much insight that I, I will take it. I love it. Thank you so much. It was any other thoughts you want to give our community that's listening right now about leadership? No, I mean, the strongest thing I can, I can urge people to do is less thinking and more doing. And whether that's about leadership, whether that's about starting something, whether that's about taking any idea you have that you're curious about whether it's real or not, the only way to figure it out is to, to do it. And so, you know, get it out of your head, get it in the real world. Great. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and insight with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. 
Well, listeners, I hope that you heard something this episode that inspires you to be radical, optimistic, and honest in your leadership adventure. I don't know about you, but my wrist is very sore from taking all the notes. If you want to learn more about Mark and other items that he's working on, check out his website, markrandolph.com. If you're looking for more content related to accountability and leadership, be sure to check out leadercast.com to sign up for our newsletters, read blogs, watch webinars, and more. And if you like what you heard today, please share, rate, and review this podcast as we grow our following and help leaders like yourself on their leadership journeys. Check out our previous episodes and subscribe so you never miss the latest from the LeaderCast podcast. Again, thank you for tuning in. Now go be a leader worth following. According to research from Edelman and LinkedIn, almost 60% of decision makers said that thought leadership led them to awarding business to an organization. Sweetfish Media helps marketing teams turn their executives into industry thought leaders. Learn more by visiting sweetfishmedia.com slash leadercast. Thanks for tuning in to the LeaderCast podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. In today's ultra-competitive job market, Top-tier talent are leaving companies in search of top-tier professional development. Now more than ever, you must invest in your emerging leaders. LeaderCast 365 is a world-class professional development system featuring access to three annual LeaderCast events, a post-event journey to activate the inspiration and insights gained from LeaderCast events, plug-and-play lunch-and-learn programs with group discussion questions, concise video courses to address weaknesses and build upon strengths, and our library of more than 1,200 short-form videos from a slate of industry experts organized into 16 key professional development categories. Invest in your all-star employees and attract new top talent to join them with LeaderCast 365.